Welcome to the Pastel Podcast CMO Series. Hello, welcome to the Pastel CMO Podcast Series. My name is James Barclay and I'm CEO of Pastel here in the United States. Today we're going to be talking about how you can establish successful work culture within your legal marketing team. Uh, obviously over the last two to three years, the, the whole world's changed. Uh, the, the way firms are operating on a day-to-day basis has changed fundamentally for all of us. Uh, many firms who thought everyone would come back to the office, lots of people haven't come back to the office. We're really navigating how we do this hybrid working environment and how as leadership, particularly in legal marketing and, and, and law firms, how leadership can make best of that change, drive productivity, ensure that their people are happy, ensure that the lawyers are happy and make sure that generally the team is is, is growing fast and happy all together. Um, today, we're lucky enough to speak with someone adept at cultivating a cohesive culture within their firm. We welcome Jen Dolan, Chief Marketing and Business Development Officer at Catton. Hi, Jen. Hey, James. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Not at all. It's wonderful to have you. Um, particularly, we're going to talk about how you're implementing programs to enable you and your leadership to unite your teams, to engage your teams and, and building that, that successful work culture you've, you've built at Catton. Um, but first, I just want to kick off the first question, which is tell us a little bit about you and how you got to your position at Catherine. Sure. So a little bit about me, I guess, starting starting first on the, the professional side. I have been in the wild and exciting world of legal marketing for about 15 years now. I spent the first half of my career on the corporate side of things in different um professional sales, marketing, and PR roles. And I relocated from Manhattan down to DC about 15 years ago and found myself in in legal marketing, thinking that the the skills and experience that I had developed in in other professional services contexts might be relevant here, but really knowing absolutely nothing about legal marketing. I sort of fell backwards by accident into this industry that I have have made my home and have come to love so much. Um, I started at Wilmer Hale in a a business development capacity and was there for for quite some time and then moved from Wilmer ultimately over to a sadly small but now defunct firm uh, called Dixine Shapiro in D.C., uh, small, really at the time, kind of heavy hitting in investigatory and litigation spaces. Um, and I moved over there as the CMO. That was my my first foray into the C-suite. And uh, it was an interesting experience. I learned a lot uh, being at that firm, kind of across the breadth of my experiences, um, learned a lot about culture there, since that's relevant to what we're, we're talking about here today. Um, and not not terribly long after uh, after joining Dixteen, I was there for really only about fifteen months, and then Catton came calling. And I, you know, I remember when the the recruiter who placed me here uh, first got in touch about the opportunity and and was talking to me about Catton and kind of what made it interesting and special. Culture was what he kind of hung his hat on, right? He was talking about the partners here, how they speak to each other, how they think about even something as silly as like meetings and setting meeting schedules and that sort of stuff. And it really intrigued me. And when I came in for my my interviews, I found that everything that he had described, you, you could see it from the moment you got here, right? And part of that is the firm, part of it is the DC office in which I'm resident. Um, but but culture is a very kind of unique, distinct thing here at Catton, even relative to other law firms that I've been at, um, and was was the biggest driver to me ultimately deciding that this is 
what I, this is where I wanted to be. So I've been with the firm since 2007 now as the chief marketing and business development officer. And um, yeah, still, still loving it. We've got so many exciting things on the horizon here. Good. And, and as well as doing that, and, and I wanted to bring this up because we often, me and you talk about this quite a lot, is um, they, there's, in being a CMO in a law firm, you've always got these plans and you've always got your strategies and you've got your team to look after. Um, and you've also continually being hit with new challenges um, every single day. Um, and I know that you're about to go off and uh, run a, a, a retreat next week. <laughs> I know you're deep, deep into all sorts of tasks. Um, and on top right. of doing all that, you also just completed your MBA, didn't you? I'd, I'd love just to hear a little bit about that, because I know that, that we're going to bring that into our chat about culture as well. But tell me a little bit about your MBA that you just completed and how you managed to actually do that whilst being a CMO. <laughs> I didn't sleep for two years is the, is the short, <laughs> easy answer. Well, I haven't um, even bought in the fact you've also got a, a, a young daughter as well. <laughs> I do. I do, which actually probably prepared me better than anything else for, for getting my MBA. I was accustomed to not sleeping since my daughter was a year old when I started the program. Um, I just finished my, in May of this year, I finished my uh, executive MBA at Georgetown, um, which is a two-year full, full-time program. So you go year-round. It is... Uh, what is it? Every two weeks, you're in class uh, all day Friday and Saturday, and then you've got a couple of uh, kind of virtual classes in the mix of, of those two weeks and, and multiple kind of residencies and, and traveling opportunities and, and, you know, kind of global experiences relevant to your coursework. Um, the, the, the reason that I was interested in doing it, quite frankly, was to, to broaden my skills, particularly in the areas of finance and strategy. Um, and what I ended up kind of getting from the experience, in addition to, uh, you know, the, the sort of knowledge and, and network of, of great colleagues, many of whom are now friends, um, was a, a sense of how to kind of broaden out what I do at Catton and, and think about what I do at Catton in a different way. Um, you know, having, having more kind of formal exposure to the development of strategy, the implementation of strategy, and particularly kind of how strategy and culture bump into each other and how they can either be supportive of each other or more often uh, challenges to one another. We actually spent a, a decent bit of time in my strategy coursework at Georgetown talking about that. And it, it turned out, again, just through kind of dumb blind luck to be an incredibly timely set of conversations to be having and things to be learning about because I also happened to go to school in the middle of the COVID pandemic. So, you know, we spent our entire first year of classes entirely virtual. We started back in, in school and then ended up going remote and, and whatnot, all of which is just to say that as the as the world of work and business was, you know, changing massively and we were all dealing with this upheaval of how to keep strategies in place and keep them running effectively when you need to pivot on your strategy in light of changing circumstances and how all of that was bumping into culture as I and others were experiencing that kind of firsthand in the workplace, I was learning about it at Georgetown, right? And I had this great sounding board of faculty and, and classmates to kind of bounce things off of. And so it ended up being this really kind of interesting, um, interesting echo chamber that, that we were able to sort of stay in among my, my cohort and I and kind of sort through some of that stuff, which I, I was incredibly, incredibly grateful for. Yeah, absolutely. And the as you say, the timing was, was very interesting because it must have been very useful coming out of that MBA, going 
kind of into the leadership role, obviously the leadership role you've got, but talking to the other leaders, particularly on the, the lawyer side, I'm guessing, um, about how you then planned what you did over the last six months. Maybe tell us a little bit more if you can, just kind of go into the detail. Were you able to take what you learned on your MBA back to the, the leaders, in particularly on the law side of the law firm, and say, hey, this is, this is maybe what we should be doing? Yeah, I think I think it was in it was in two main areas, right? That that what I did in my MBA coursework um, was was most relevant, and I was able to bring it back into the workplace. Most one on the strategy side, right? Mm-hmm. And and that was you know as every every business and certainly every law firm, right, is looking at the strategies that you had in place and had begun implementing and thought were wonderful, and we're going to you know carry our firm to ultimate prosperity. Now we're all looking at them going oh, damn, the whole world is different, right? We're facing a recession. We're facing a tight labor market. We've got all of these kind of macro factors. The strategies that we thought were going to work two years ago just aren't relevant anymore, right? Or or may not be relevant. And certainly in the legal industry, right, with the the compression that you're seeing here, the increasing costs, um, a lot of what I did in looking at different business models and looking at um, kind of the adjustment of, of strategies, right, not necessarily scrapping scrapping an existing strategy, but but um, evolving a strategy, if you will. A lot of that coursework was really, really relevant to conversations that I've had with Catton's leadership team, with our practice group leaders, um, you know, with members of our executive committee. And then on the culture piece, right? Because again, what's the expression? Strategy. Culture strategy for breakfast, strategy to culture for breakfast. I'm the world's worst with metaphors. Everyone who knows me will tell you I'm I constantly confuse them and get them backwards yeah. and they make absolutely no sense. That's <laughs> just the charm of me. Um, but the, the point is you can have an amazing strategy, right? That's perfectly timed and wonderful for your organization. And, and at least in my experience, if you don't have a culture that is supportive and understanding and ready to embrace the strategy, it's simply not going to work. And everyone that I know at every level, business professionals and uh, attorneys and, and law firm administrators or law firm leaders, I should say, who are on the legal side, culture is what we're all talking about right now, right? Because you've got people working remotely, you've got um, you know generational differences, you've got the effects of COVID. There's just so many things um, pulling at the, you know, the hems of the hemlines of culture, if you will. Mm. And I think, I think most people are feeling perhaps more so in the past. And I can say it happened certainly more so in the past. Like if we don't get culture, right, we're going to have a talent problem. And, and in professional services, if you have a talent problem, you have a business problem. Yes, absolutely. And there's a perception, I suppose, and this might be entirely wrong. So tell me, tell me if I am, um, but there's a perception that I've seen, which is that, the more senior lawyers are very interested in getting everyone back to the office um, because they perceive, you know, I guess built on uh, law firms have traditionally been built on a kind of apprenticeship model where everyone comes in the office and you learn your craft and you have to do that really by sitting next to someone. And of course that's, that's shifted. Now you're already in a super regional global business already. So, I mean, I'm sure that's already been, that's been a challenge forever, but from a business services perspective from the people in legal marketing, um, shown that productivity is outrageously effective from home. Um, yeah. Has there been a friction at all at Catton between those parts of the business? You know, the lawyer saying, hey, you all need to come in and the business services saying, actually, we're doing a great job at home and you're in the middle of that trying to work out the best way forward. How are you navigating that? 
you know, it, you, you're absolutely right when you say that um, the business professional side, and certainly this is true of our, our marketing and business development team, working from home and being able to offer our team a ton of flexibility in that regard has been a godsend, right? And it's been a godsend in, in the sense of productivity, right? People have more time um, available to devote to their work. It's it's in a comfortable environment, right? All of the things. Um, but it also, it, it kind of comes back to, to culture and to people's experience in the workplace. And for a lot of people, I would say certainly the majority of people on my team, you know, they're able to be kind of happier, more balanced, and thus more productive um, members of the team. At, at Catton, we took a, an incredibly, um, I think, flexible approach Patent Flex is, is what we call our kind of work from home hybrid work policy. And it really leaves the uh, decision making for how frequently roles in a particular department or practice area need to be in office um, to the leaders of those areas, right? So in business okay. professional groups, it's the chief officer who decides um, how often a team or members on a team need to be in the office without there being kind of a firm mandated number of days. And I think what we're seeing now, and not unique to our firm, but but certainly across the industry, is on the legal side. Um, certainly, there's there's got to be more flexibility than there ever was before COVID. I don't think anybody's arguing that, right? Yep. But I think you're seeing a lot of lawyers um, more concerned than they were perhaps as we were just starting to creep out of the pandemic um, with the impact on culture and on productivity by not having butts in seats, if you will. And in our team and in other administrative teams at the firm, we're actually seeing quite the opposite, right? Culture is culture is improving. Um, people on the team, I think, are feeling better, more engaged. Morale is higher, and productivity hasn't hasn't taken a hit. So it, it's sort of interesting to me that you have these two groups of professionals who operate in the, in the same in the same environment, albeit in a different. Um, there are certainly some some power dynamics, right, that are that are different. But um, it, it's interesting to me that business professionals generally have found a way to really make this work and kind of capture the benefits that we had all been espousing about more flexibility in, in working from home. And it seems like we're struggling a bit to figure out how to make those true and make people feel comfortable that they're true for the legal side of our business. Interesting. Okay. And I mean, what's obvious is that you made a distinct plan a while ago. I mean, as well as when when did you come up with Cat and Flex? You know, when did when and, and is that evolving? Is there a team who's in charge of it, or are you kind of evolving that separately as as, as separate teams? Cat uh, and Flex, Cat and Flex. The, you know, the conceptualization of it began. Oh, this is COVID times, James. So asking me to remember. <laughs> a couple of years ago, everything was a couple of years ago. <laughs> it could have been 2015. It could have been last week. I don't. I, exactly. I can see the certainty. Um, <laughs> No, it, it began when it, it began certainly well before we had all come back into the office and, and we reopened our offices. There were a lot of four stones, weren't there? Yeah, there, there yeah. really were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we opened our offices in April of this year. Uh, Catflex was conceptualized well before that um, as we were thinking about how we wanted people to return to to work. You know what we found after you know talking to our partners, talking to our associates, talking to our business professionals was that certainly people felt that it would be um, beneficial to them from a productivity and from an engagement and morale standpoint, if they had more flexibility, had had the option of as much flexibility as the firm was comfortable giving them. And okay. I think the firm took the, the approach, uh, which makes sense again, because this is very 
um, consistent with the firm culture of letting the leaders of the respective groups within our firm, so practices, departments, business professional groups, right, those who are sort of closest to the needs of, of a particular group, letting them make the ultimate decision on what was going to be best for, you know, in the case of our lawyers, their teams and their clients. And yep. in the case of our business professional groups, right, the individuals on the teams and our ability to support the lawyers in our respective areas. Um, and so the, the conceptualization of it started a long time ago. As you can imagine, there were many, 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 many rounds of internal yep. discussions as to whether, you know, because we kind of knew that we were likely to be um, at the forefront of flexibility. Um, I know a lot of other M-Law firms have said, you know, come in two days a week, come in three days a week. Um, but the fact that there is a firm, if not mandate, a firm suggestion for number of days was different than how we decided to approach patent flex. Now, that being said, we've also been very clear that this is going to be iterative, right? I mean, the whole world is sort of flying the plane. <laughs> but again, metaphor that I'll mess up, learning to fly the plane as, as we're actually in the plane. Yep. Uh, and, and so we were very clear that we were going to take this approach, but that we were going to learn from it, right? We were going to see how this worked. We wanted to make sure that our clients were getting the level of service, the responsiveness that they needed, and make sure that our practice group leaders felt comfortable leading the groups in, in a more um, hybrid setting. And so we continue to, we continue to review it. Um, we continue to think about kind of the, the various sets of constituents that are affected by it, right? Partners, associates, clients, et cetera. Um, and, and we'll see where it goes from there. But I can say with certainty on the business professional side, I, I don't see us going back to, certainly in my department, I don't see us going back to any kind of set mandate for, for very consistent time in the office, right? Like we have folks yeah. in my department come in once a month so that for our monthly staff meeting, we're all together in our respective offices. We can grab lunch. We can have a cocktail. It's nice to see each other in person and catch up. But that's it. And I think asking people to come in once a month is, is pretty reasonable and seems to be working for our folks. Great. And, and drilling into that, because actually that's the bit you've had control, you know, very much control over is and the and the challenges for you with your teams. You know, what how have you how have you ensured that your culture is is protected? You know, what you already had, how are you developing kind of a new you know, a, a, a new culture, I suppose, and as you onboard new people, as you and and how do you how do you make sure that we're just not all, you know, you're not all just sitting on Zooms for and doing tasks? You know, what is it that you've built in to process into systems so that you, you're building that team dynamic and you're evolving that culture in a positive fashion? A thing that we have done um, over the last year that we've really invested a lot of time and energy in uh, that has a number of different kind of initiatives that fall under it. Uh, but that I would describe at the highest level as kind of our, our solid attempts to create um, or maybe to reinforce a, a feedback culture within the department. Um, I think that has been hugely helpful. You know, if I'm, if I'm being candid, we, we really started thinking about this because we, you know, we came to appreciate that there were um, pockets within the department where engagement and, and morale were perhaps not as, as high as we would have liked. And that, you know, not only troubled us on a personal level, right, wanting your colleagues to, to feel good about where they work and the teams that they work on and how their contribution to a team is valued and recognized. Um, but also, you know, when people aren't engaged and their morale dips, productivity follows. And all of that is that much harder to manage in a, in a hybrid or in a, in a remote environment. So we, we thought it was really important, the leadership team in my department, and I thought it was really important that we 
shut up and start listening and and try to implement a a a culture and and you know culture is how do you implement a culture right you got to have some sort of tangible things that you do that become kind of pillars of the culture and we really wanted it to be clear that these weren't just things that we were telling people we wanted them to do that sounded nice but things that where they would see kind of demonstrable action and results coming from. So we did things like um, 360, we brought in a, a consultant to do 360 reviews for starting with our leadership and senior team. And then on an annual basis, we'll be offering the opportunity to everybody on our team kind of broken out by, by level of seniority. Um, we'll be doing rounds of 360 uh, feedback reviews, right? So that we can help people on our team as individuals become more aware of how they show up in the team, where their greatest strengths are, how their colleagues perceive working with them. We did a lot of listening circles, um, working with the same consultant. You know, we had them come in and, and you know, absent the participation of leadership so that everybody in the team felt like they could be really candid. You know, we asked people what was working, what wasn't, where were some of their greatest joys at work, where were some of the greatest challenges. And from that, we generated um, kind of an action plan, right, of projects, initiatives, um, you know, opportunities for communication that we thought after brainstorming as a team and prioritizing the order of them as a team that we thought would kind of most most immediately impact the areas that that people thought um, would be made better. So, you know, for example, we now do um, cross-functional team meetings, right, where we have groups within the department that most regularly work together. Um, and, you know, once a quarter, twice a year, whatever it is, we'll get the groups together to just kind of talk about our processes, talk about our output, talk about um, what's working, what's not. And, and you know, all of that's fine. Anybody can do that. The, the really hard work that has gone into it has been making those conversations um, feel comfortable and safe for people mm -hmm. in the department and on those two teams to really put on the table a spot of friction, right? Because the worst is you get people in a room and you go, okay, how's it working? And you know that there are things that aren't working quite as well as they could. And everybody says, no, it's great. It's wonderful. Everything is perfect. It all works exactly <laughs> as it should. And it's like, guys, come on. We know that's not true. Yeah. And I give my team so, so much credit. I mean, we have such an amazing group of professionals in the marketing and BD team here. And they have certainly with these cross-functional um, meetings that I'm, I'm referring to, but just the efforts that we've undertaken generally under this umbrella of, of kind of feedback culture, they have come to all of these with honesty and candor and, and bravery. And they have pushed themselves outside of their comfort zone. They've been kind and generous with each other. I mean, it's in the midst of, you know, the dumpster fire world that we're all living in, mm. if you need something really heartwarming, seeing the way my team has has shown up and has shown up for each other over this last year has been has been absolutely beautiful. That's fantastic. And I think what you just said there is really important, which is bravery, because that's not easy. If you do it properly, that's not easy at all, is it? It's really not. I mean, we had, there's a particular conversation that I'm thinking of where, you know, as the conversation is happening, I'm getting IMs from colleagues that are in it going, wow this is super awkward, yeah. you know, okay, this one doesn't feel good. And, you know, the, the truth is, as I was thinking about it in the middle of that conversation, it was absolutely right, right? Your visceral reaction is, yeah, okay, this is a tense conversation, right? This mm -hmm. is, you know, people are being honest about what doesn't work. And sometimes what doesn't work is 
a process or ambiguity around responsibilities. Sometimes it's people, right? Sometimes it's it's the personalities and kind of the way the personalities intersect. And so these these conversations can certainly be, uh, even if not heated, just, just sort of charged, right? Mm-hmm. But the fact that they were charged told me that they were working, right? And and I think that the team would say the same thing, right? Those conversations that were the most um, charged, for lack of a better word, right, are the ones from which we've started to see um, the, the best results, right? Because people were willing to be brave and say, look, this really does not work. Let's just put it on the table and talk about it. And we pushed through the tough conversations in a respectful way that got us to the place on the other side where it's like, okay, I understand how this person thinks about something and I might not like it, but I understand it now. And so I can operate this way and they'll operate this way. You know, we have shared kind of ground rules with respect to how we'll deal with something. Um, and so it's been, it's painful as hell. I mean, I will tell you, putting <laughs> putting in place, um, if you do it the right way, I think pushing a, a feedback culture is, it's hard and it is time consuming. And, you know, at points it might feel like this isn't like the real work that we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. But in my view, it, it is right. It underpins everything. And it's, um, you know, we're, we're really seeing the results of it. And, and I can tell you from sort of how the, how the team feels, how it feels to be a part of the team. Um, it's, it's pretty awesome when you get it right. Yeah. So it, and I think that's spot on. If you essentially embrace the awkward and if, if you muck it up, if you say you're going to do feedback, and then you do it in a superficial way where none of the real truths got, got discussed. Um, that's even worse. I mean, then, then you're absolutely stuffed, aren't you? So it's that, that, as you say, the bravery and the embracing the awkward and making sure you're having those, those challenging conversations is, is yeah. the key to it, I guess. It is. And I mean, look, it's also, it's, it's super humbling, right? Like that's the reason that we incorporated an individual 360 review component into what we decided to do, because I can tell you, you know, I've gotten this wrong, just me personally, um, as the leader of the group, I've gotten this wrong many more times than I've gotten it right in my, in my time at Catton. And, you know, one of the things that eluded me for, you know, a while. Um, and I, I feel pretty comfortable saying, although I'm sure my team will hear this and, and tell me if, if I'm giving myself more credit than I deserve, but, um, you know, I, I used to ask people to, to give me feedback, right? Like, what do you guys think about this? What are we doing? Da, da, da. And there wouldn't really be much of a response or the response would be, oh, it's fine. Right. You know, you sort of have a sense like, okay, well, that, I mean, it must be okay. Nobody really had much of anything to say. What I came to realize from going through a 360 evaluation process, right, and and giving my team that kind of forum to give me their really, really candid, because it was anonymized, um, feedback was people weren't necessarily comfortable giving me feedback, right? So here I am, I think I'm doing a great job constantly asking for it, but because nobody feels comfortable giving it, I'm kind of checking the box mentally going, well, I asked and they didn't want to offer. So there it is, not realizing that, you know, the burden is on me to make sure that people introverts, extroverts, people who are more comfortable speaking in a group setting, people who want to talk more privately, right? Like as their leader, it's my job to make sure that I am creating the environment where all the different kinds of people who show up to work in all the different kinds of ways can offer feedback if I really care about getting it, right? If it's not just a platitude, which it never was, I just genuinely didn't understand that the way I was soliciting it was part of the problem. Right. And so the 360 review gave me that insight and I've changed it now. And now I have got tons of feedback coming in. Lots of feedback. Brilliant. Full of feedback. 
and it's and it's building that foundation for the future and it's building that foundation for, for you know what might be more difficult times ahead um for we'll wrap up soon but for for other leaders in your position what's one practical piece of advice that you would uh, you would give them we benefited I hate to even suggest this, right, because I know how how under scrutiny all of our budgets are, but what we benefited hugely from was working with uh, a particular consultancy, which if it doesn't offend anybody's sensibilities, I will shout out is Fringe uh, PD, uh, owned and run by Rachel Bosch, who is an absolute um, rock star and, and uh, just a, a genius in this area. Um, because I didn't really know where to start, I knew what we I had a sense of what I wanted to do and what we needed to do, but I wasn't quite sure how to do it. Um, I think I had the good sense and maybe the humility to call in somebody um, in, in the form of Rachel and kind of say, what do I do about this? Right. Like I, yeah. I know that engagement isn't as high as I'd like it to be, but I genuinely don't, don't really know how to tackle it. And she was the one who helped us think through, you know, whether 360 reviews were the right step, whether listening circles were the right step. Um, you know, she, when we got all of the feedback, right, she sat down and she and I had a series of conversations to brainstorm on um, sort of proposed action steps, right, that we could go back to the team with as a starting point. And then that evolved into something that was very much um, ours, meaning the, the CAT and MBD team. So I guess the, the practical step that I would recommend for anybody in a leadership position who is perhaps as well-intentioned but ignorant as I was, is get the ear of somebody who's good in this space. And even if it's a little bit of a financial investment as, as it was for us, um, it, it's so, so worth it, right? We, we work with lawyers, right? We all know that people who are experts in areas, there's a, there's a reason for their expertise, right? Niche expertise helps us all. Absolutely. It is. It is. So in, embrace the expertise, find somebody who's really good at this, um, befriend them and, you know, heed their advice once you feel like you've got somebody that kind of understands you and your leadership style and the culture of the department that you're that you're leading and that the culture of the firm that the department is in um because for us that was that was really the starting point that that kind of helped us getting helped us get started on the path that we're on now fantastic no thank you very much and thank you for going into so much detail about it i think it's yeah hopefully you know, it wasn't hopefully it wasn't too much know, detail. it's not very easy to make a generic statement of a we listened you know it's like oh great <laughs> you know, now what kind of thing so um so no that's 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 extremely helpful now i've got just uh, we always do this in our podcast a, a couple yeah. of quick fire rounds for you some oh quick question and answers so um what's this your like the Proust questionnaire my exactly. yeah. exactly. what, what words i want to hear at the pearly gates <laughs> we're all judging you here so uh, okay. what's your favorite business and non-business book Oh, um, so the business book that I am super into right now is Atomic Habits. I'm like halfway through it and I'm like a self-help guru. And so anything that is kind of self-help at the intersection of business, which Atomic Habits for me is, I can see so many applications to my personal life and my professional life. I'm obsessed with it. Um, my favorite non-business uh, book is probably This Side of Paradise, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Right. Excellent. Next is what was your first job? Like your first, first job? I had a newspaper route. I delivered the courier news using my mom and dad's sitting lawnmower in the suburbs of New Jersey. You got a sitting lawnmower. Okay. I had. I, I did. Paid, I was paid one pence of paper. It wasn't worth it. Um, what, <laughs> what makes you happy? It was happy a terrible job. <laughs> <laughs> what makes you happy at work? You know, my team, my team makes me really happy. We've got great people here and 
none of this would be fun if we didn't have them. Great, of course. And what what are you listening to right now? What's your favorite podcast or music or audio book? Oh, um, I listen to anything that Adam Grant does. Uh, my husband keeps trying to get me into some ridiculous podcast about British soccer, which James, you would probably. Oh, appreciate, so, yeah. but <laughs> I'm, I'm, I think it's it's like guys in jackets, guys in blazers, something like that. Luckily, my husband won't hear this; otherwise, he would know that I've been listening or I've been listening to it on like four speed and telling him that I'm listening, um, but not really retaining any of it. But stuff that I actually like is really Adam Grant stuff. I like Brene Brown, um, and I've kind of fallen down a Glennon Doyle rabbit hole recently. Perfect. Excellent. Well, listen, thank you ever so much. We're going to put links up to the various uh, the various people you've recommended um, and those books as well. And thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. I'll see you soon. But, uh, but yeah, thank you ever so much. I think it's been extremely helpful. Thanks, James. I appreciate you guys having me.